Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, thank you for joining us as you do each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, the usual homework for you guys. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. We really appreciate those. Five-star ratings are best. You know you love the show, so give us a quick five-star rating. Leave a quick review as well. Those help us out a ton. Also, want to remind you guys, we are now available on Podcast One. In addition to all the other platforms that we are on, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Podcast One is the newest place you can get us. So if you're a subscriber to Podcast One, check us out there as well. Also want to remind you guys about our partnership with Amazon. You guys have been so great with this and helping out veterans. If you've never donated to a veterans organization before, here's a really easy way to start, and it begins with Amazon.com. Go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon banner, and it'll take you right to Amazon.com, do all your shopping. We get a percentage of what you spend. We take that money and donate it back to some of the great veterans charities you've heard here right on the Hazard Ground. So it's an easy way for you to help out vets without ever having to leave the comfort of your own home. And heck, you get to do some shopping and buy yourself some stuff while you're at it. Now that all that's done, let's get on with this week's episode. Our guest this week is a retired Army Sergeant First Class who, after 22 years of service, including five total deployments, Iraq, Afghanistan, and operational deployments to Bosnia and North Africa, has multiple jobs outside of the military helping veterans. He's the Director of Veteran Services at the Family Care Center, and he's also the Executive Director of the Colorado Veterans Health and Wellness Agency, obviously in Colorado. He is Dwayne French joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dwayne, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, so the work you're doing now, uh, post-career in mental health for veterans, obviously very huge, very important. We'll get to all that coming up. We always start back at the beginning, and, well, how'd you end up in the Army? Yeah, that's always a great question. We love an origin story, right? Right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, really, I joined, uh, I, I didn't consider joining until really just before I graduated that senior year, you know, looking at what's on the other side of uh of graduation and you know uh, there wasn't much i think i had i had applied to one private out of state catholic university and i didn't realize that like with every adjective you have another ten thousand dollars onto it <laughs> and uh told my mom uh, that uh, hey you know you guys gonna pay for college and she was like no not at all and then, see this was 92 right so this was after uh, the gulf war nothing really was going on and, uh, you know, I, I was driving with my mom one day and I said, you know, I've been thinking about the Army and just kind of threw it out there. And she was like, oh, that's not a bad idea. And I thought she'd freak out. And I went down to the recruiting station. Uh, it came back and I said, hey, I'm joining on Monday. And she was like, yeah, that's not what I meant. And so then she freaked out. Um, my dad was a Vietnam vet. So uh, she said, you know, hey, talk to your son. And, uh, and he convinced me uh, to try the reserves out. You know, he said, if you want to go to college, try the reserves and uh, then, uh, you know, see what it's like. Uh, really, I did it for a year. I went to basic training. I was in the reserves for about nine months, did one semester of college to make sure that it really was not what I was, was going for. And then uh, and then went active duty. Um, you know, by that time, I was sleeping in my dad's basement, you know, working at a pizza parlor or something like that and realized that no matter how much I had thought I wanted to join the Army to go to college. Uh, it was really uh, about the adventure excitement and really wild things. And so um, about a year after the reserves, I signed up active duty, and my first duty station was in Germany. It's a beautiful place to end up. You know, all of us, I think, prior to 9-11, when we were making our uh, sort of order of merit list where you wanted to end up going, like Germany was my first four choices. I didn't get a single one of them, but it was my first four choices. So uh, if you're a young single guy in your early 20s or, you know, late teens and the Army wants to send you somewhere remote in the world, you always go to Germany. But uh, you, you ended up there. I didn't. Good for you. Well, yeah, you know, and they, they said, uh, when I went back after duty, they said, hey, you could be a, uh, see, I had to enlist as a truck driver in the reserves. There was, uh, there's no combat arms in Milwaukee. I would have done whatever uh, they wanted. 
but uh, when I went active duty, they said they can't change your job. And they said, well, you can choose where you want to go. They said, you can be a truck driver in Texas. You can be a truck driver in Germany. And I said, yeah, um, not a hard choice. So my, my first duty station, again, was in Mannheim, Germany. And, uh, and you're right, it was a, a great three years. Uh, two years, really, that's where my first deployment. There's not that many of us that were in, uh, um, in Operation Joint Forge, Joint Endeavor. It's the first Bosnia deployment. So uh, we were there, boots on ground, crossing the Sava and, and getting in the middle of uh, everyone that was doing bad stuff over there. So let's talk about Bosnia because it's 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 sort of like a forgotten about time in military history. Um, a lot of it was fought from thirty thousand feet, right? There wasn't any real com- there was no combat, you know, troops on the ground. Well, let me rephrase: there was no actual ground combat. There were troops on the ground, obviously in Bosnia, as you were one of them. But you know, nothing from a ground war ever engaged. Everything was done from airstrikes at thirty thousand feet. So, what was that whole experience like? You know, yeah, there were definitely those of us down there. Um, we pushed in 1st Armored Division, and then in the second, you know, that, that following year, 1st Infantry Division replaced 1st Armor. Um, you know, it, it was in combat. You know, I, I say that, you know, out of my five deployments, you know, one that was easy, the easiest, I guess. Um, you know, but it, but it was more of an operational deployment, obviously a peacekeeping deployment, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't danger there. Um, you know, if you know, listeners will, will check it out. Bridging the Sava River was one of the greatest engineering feats, um, you know, of the, the last 50 years. Um, the, you know, the flooding that happened there, then just the sheer amount of unexploded ordnance that, uh, you know, by the time that all the land, uh, all the land had changed hands and there was just all kind of mines and everything. So there was a lot of danger there. You know, when we first got there, there were guys standing on the street corners looking at you at the corner of their eye with, you know, AKs and stuff. But but ultimately, I think the the region had had so much war that they were just they were, they were over it. They were they were done with it. So it, it very much it was more about uh, sort of building the infrastructure and, and, you know, keeping the peace and, you know, sort of the, the teacher getting on the playground in between the, the, the folks who were fighting and kind of breaking them up. So after Bosnia ends and you return from that operational deployment, like what are you thinking at this point in your career? You know, that's uh, it's another great question. It's one thing that always surprised me is sort of the um, the serendipity of the choices that we make. I was actually going to get out at that point and go green to gold, and uh, my squad leader, you know, said, "Well, you know, what are you going to do with it? What's what's your degree?" And I said, "You know, I wanted to be a teacher." And, uh, and he said, well, you know, well, that's what an NCO does. Um, that's, that's really what, you know, what we do as NCOs is we teach. Um, and, uh, and so I decided to turn down green to gold um, one time and, and multiple times that I decided to, to stay on the NCO route versus the officer route and uh, told the uh, reenlistment NCO I wanted to go to airborne school and route to Fort Campbell or I won't reenlist. And she was like, who cares, basically. Um, but she did. I, I was able to get airborne school and then was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. And, uh, and, and pretty much the rest was history. All right. So where are you on 9-11? Uh, back in Germany, actually. That's the, um, so I, I had been in Germany two times. And it was, it's interesting for me on 9-11, it happens in the afternoon. Everybody has the memories about it. But of course, it was what, two or three in the afternoon for us. Um, I'd met my wife, um, you know, uh, she's from Knoxville, Tennessee. And, and as I was traveling through between Fayetteville, St. Louis, we met. And so we had gotten married. We were expecting our first child. And so um, the opportunity came for me to leave Fort Bragg and go back to Germany. And so I took it, um, just being familiar with it and, um, you know, right going up through the ranks by that time. And, uh, and yeah, so we listened to 9-11 happen on the radio. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, because we were in our company area, we didn't have the, the TV or anything like that, right? You know, so everybody, you know, and, and this is when I talked to everybody else, it was, uh, you know, early in the morning and, you know, maybe just getting the kids off to school or just getting into to work call or what have you. Um, so we didn't have any TV in our company areas, and the only thing that we really had um, you know, was, was AFN. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, we were listening to it, you know, and well, but like let me ask else. you just out of curiosity, yeah. because I mean, 
it's not like, you know, the internet is booming and there's all this social media to be able to tell you what's going on that people are constantly monitoring back in 2001. So I'm just curious how, when you're sitting in Germany, you first learn about the news. I mean, was it on, was it, or the radio on and people just heard it? I mean, how quickly does it disseminate through the ranks to American soldiers in Germany that, that you know, all hell's breaking loose in America? It, it, it again, in, in an amusing story at a very unamusing day, um, I was coming back into the, the building and there was this, there was another guy, uh, I think I was E6 fighting, was another E5, he came in and he was like, hey, did you just hear a plane hit the World Trade Center? And I'm like, shut up, right? Because this is the kind of guy who just, you know, you just don't really believe him, right? And I'm like, and so I walk in uh, back into a, a company orderly room there, and and I said, and you hear, you know, I, this guy was just making up a stupid joke about a, a plane, you know, hitting the building, and I just kind of blew it off. Uh, and I said, you know, turn on the radio, see what AFN says. And, and you're right, you know, it's not like the first thing I was, you know, to do was to go on to Google. And and AFN had just broke the news, and it was after the first plane had hit, and and like many others, we we didn't realize it was, um, that it was an attack. Uh, we thought that, you know, it was, you know, a mistake, an, an aviation accident. And, uh, and I remember clearly I hadn't turned it on until the plane hit the Pentagon. And when the, when the plane hit the Pentagon, that's when I turned to my NCO and I said, we're going to war. That's it. Um, there was no other way of, of understanding that it would be something different. Uh, you know, and, and again, by that time, the word spread and pretty much how everybody else was saying they were gathered around TVs. Everybody was sort of gab- gathered around all the radios and, and listening to, because over there, it's really AFN is what you got. And right. So um, we were listening to AFN radio and it was broadcasting all the updates. Um, one of the, the, the clerk, um, our supply clerk in the company, her father was a uh, janitor um, at uh, World Trade Center, hadn't gone into work that day, but it, it spent a couple of hours us trying to figure out, you know, where her father was. Uh, and of course you're overseas, right? So again, I very clearly remember the commander, I think was coming up from a, a, a battalion meeting or something. He comes running down the hall and says, get everybody in formation. And we immediately went up to increased, um, you know, uh, security. Right. Uh, and by that time, you know, those of us who were sort of pre nine 11, post nine 11, we saw it change. Um, in, in the late 90s, you used to be able to drive through Bragg, no problem. There were no gates. There were no, you know, uh, there were no guards. No, mm-hmm. You had yeah. you know, Fayetteville on one side, Spring Lake on the other, and just, you know, residents used Bragg Boulevard as a way to get through. And, and so the same thing in Germany, right? You could, you know, come on and off, and the bases were pretty open. And then, you know, like many things in the world, uh, that, that changed in an instant. Yeah, I just can't imagine. I mean, we felt helpless here in America. I was wondering, I mean, did you guys feel even more helpless because you're so far away? You know, I, I don't I don't know. I, I think that it was very much a, um, you know, let's take action. I mean, not helpless as far as we're, you know, we're watching what we can, you know, sitting there and, and what can we do about that. It's, you know, there were definitely some, not some very apparent immediate threats, but there were some threats that we needed to address and, you know, and so we sort of took action on the small level to lock down. They were, uh, so this was in Kaiser Slaughter, and we were on Claybrook Concern, which was one end of the town. And, um, and just like, um, you know, in, in a lot of bases in Germany, you have a lot of small, and they call them concerns, but small bases. Um, and so we were really, you know, locking everything down and getting accountability and, you know, making sure that, you know, everyone was taken care of. So I think we were maybe a little too busy to feel helpless at that point. Gotcha. Okay, so um, you're in Germany, and you know you're going to war, but it doesn't exactly happen for you for several years. So, uh, I mean, tell me, kind of just bridge the gap before you get to that first deployment. Yeah, that's, uh, I mentioned earlier, I wanted to go to the 101st. My uncle had been in the 101st in Vietnam, so my dad and three of his brothers had all been uh, in Vietnam, I think, between 67 and 69. And, uh, and so I had... Uh, you know, I sort of always wanted to go to um, 101st Fort Campbell. It was halfway between Knoxville, where my wife was from, and, and St. Louis, where my family is from. So basically, I, I said, you know, let's go there, and uh, and then I'll go off to war. You guys will be taken care of. You know, I, I really, like many others at the time, you know, wanted to, to get in the fight and get something done. 
So, uh, so I was talking to my branch manager and I said, Hey, you know, I want to, I want to go to Fort Campbell. And they were like, well, you know, that they're going to war. I was like, absolutely. Call back in two weeks. So I call back in two weeks and lo and behold, since I wanted to volunteer for something, they nominated me for recruiting duty and I couldn't get out of it. No matter how hard I tried. Oh man. So, uh, so it was sort of like training for the Super Bowl for 10 years and then, uh, being stuck up in the front office while, while everybody else is playing the game. So, yeah, I was uh, I was out at uh, Fort Meade, Maryland. Um, by the time, so Afghanistan had already kicked off. By the time that uh, we left, I, we, when we were in Germany, our unit, our our location was one of the first um, aviation air bridges into uh, pushing support into Afghanistan. So we were doing that. Uh, but then, you know, I was in Fort Meade, Maryland, in 2003, whenever Iraq kicked off, and. So yeah, I was uh, I was selling the army to people that wanted to join up. I wonder, do you, do you think back to those times and you thought your job was fairly easy at that point because there was so much fervor and so much patriotism floating around? You know, um, yeah, I don't think that recruiting was ever easy. You know, I mean, you you had a lot of, you know, there were people that said, you know, hey, I want to join, and of course, not all of the people that said I wanted to join were necessarily people that you wanted to to have in the military, um, you know, and I was recruiting outside of a military installation. So it sort of kept an honest man honest. If I you know, was talking to a young man or woman about joining the military and I tried to blow smoke up their butt, then they just go talk to mom or dad or uncle. And everybody knew somebody who was in the military in the area. Um, and so as much as, you know, it was, you know, look, there's, there's a job to do. Here's an opportunity for a job to do. You know, they say that, uh, you know, you recruit in your own image. Um, I put a lot of guys in who were tired of sleeping in their dad's basement, right? You know, mm-hmm. saying, look, here's, here's an opportunity to, uh, to do something with your life, to do something with the, uh, um, you know, with the, and, and the fact is, is you couldn't deny it, you know, and everybody asked me straight up, do you think there's a chance that I'm going to go to war? And it's like, yes, there is a chance and, you know, join the military and you'll get trained up for it and you'll get taken care of. I, I always, <laughs> I chuckle at that because it's like the, the, the naivete towards, you think there's a chance I'll go to war? And then quickly, you know, and Iraq kicks off in 2003. And, I, and by the time, you know, you're done recruiting in 2005 and you move on to 2006, it wasn't like, no, you're going. There's not a chance. You, you are going to deploy at some point in time. Yeah. And, and you know, and they, again, it was that one of those things that was just sort of took that question off of the table and, you know, and my thing, I always knew that I wasn't going to be a recruiter forever, right? It was uh, it was an assignment that the military gave me, and I appreciated it. It actually uh, helped me become a better leader um, later on in my career because, you know, I'd spent so much time, you know, around 18 to 21-year-olds um, as a recruiter. So I, I, it did help me as a um, an op sergeant, a platoon sergeant by the time I got to Fort Carson. Uh, but I also knew that it wasn't going to be forever, right? You know, there's some, you know, recruiting is its own MOS and I could have transitioned and I stayed there. But again, that's not what I signed up for. And, uh, and, and so I you know, got out. And one of the things that I, um, I always did was that I had a young man or woman sitting in front of me and I said, if I walked into the motor pool a year from now and this person is standing in my formation, would I be okay with that? And so it was, it, it was a little bit of my way of saying, you know what, it's, uh, um, it's a way for me to take care of the army as well as, uh, you know, put some, uh, give a future bunch of good young men and women. You mentioned Fort Carson, that's your next assignment. Ultimately you deploy out of there to Iraq. How does that all happen? And what are you told? Where are you heading? What do you know? Yeah. You know, and this was the, by this time, um, if there is a place to be stuck in the army, Fort Carson is on the top of the list. Oh yeah. People want to be stuck at. Um, my, my younger brother joined shortly after, not shortly after I believe joined when I was in Iraq and he got stuck at Fort Polk and had to get out of the army just to get out of Fort Polk. But my family and I, basically I ended up my career, I I got there in 06 and I got out in 14 and spent the rest of that time at at Fort Carson in in various units. Um, when we got there, it was, uh, second brigade, second ID. So again, those who, who sort of follow this, this early transition of, um, of the early years of. OIF, there was a brigade in Korea that was pulled out of Korea and deployed to Ramadi and then pulled out. Of, and then when they left Ramadi, they came here to, uh, to Fort Carson. And so this was second brigade, second ID. Um, by the time I got there, 
Uh, I was the first sergeant commander. There were probably 20 something people in our unit and we had a, a roster of about 160. Um, so it was supposed to be a big unit. And I was, um, I think I was the first D seven in the company. Um, there was only one other platoon sergeant. So this was January of, um, 2006, uh, a handful of people in the company, Nobody had deployed because the Army in its infinite wisdom took all of our, uh, all the senior leaders, all of us came off of recruiting duty at the same time. Um, so only the, the company XO and the, the first sergeant had even been on a deployment before. Uh, I think we had like three vehicles. We had very little equipment. That was January of 06. And by October of 06, we were up to full strength and, and deployed to Iraq. And so things were, were really ramping up very quickly at that time. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, 2006, end of 2006 to 2007 is when the surge begins. I mean, I, I was there through the middle of 2006, so um, you're talking about the height of, of violence, both secretary and military at that point in time, yep. uh, when you're in Iraq. What's your mission when you get there? What are you supposed to be doing? So, 2nd uh, Brigade um, took over north of the river in Baghdad, so we were at... Uh, Which river, Tigris or Euphrates? Uh, the Tigris? Yeah, the one on the east or the one on the west? <laughs> the one on the west. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so we were in Rustamaya before it had been Camp Cuervo, uh, but it was uh, so it was it was on the um, on the north side of the river, you know, sort of southeast, I guess, of of Sadr City. Uh, and our unit's responsibility was logistics in the area. Um, we were the brigade logistical element, and uh, you know, running uh, patrols deploying um, uh, supplies anywhere north of the river, we'd get pushed in from the, you know, uh, from Balad and then um, we'd push supplies out the sector. But the other significant thing was our unit was responsible for battle damage recovery. And, uh, and at that point it was when, you know, the EFPs, the explosive force projectiles, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, the, the weapon of the devil, it just, it, we, we would see, you know, just vehicles, tanks, you know, just, you know, significant armored vehicles just peeled open like, uh, you know. Like Can of tuna fish. Yeah, you know, and, and so uh, we were there and, and it was, um, like you said, it was a very kinetic environment. It was very, it was between that time where everybody left Sodder City alone. So we sort of danced around Sodder City. Which was um, a tactically and, smart move because that place was uh, sure. less than fun. Right, which is when they when they stopped going in in, in 04 and then they went back in in 08. Uh, so we were there, you know, um, basically um, we were there during the concretization of Baghdad. Um, our unit was the, the ones that hauled all the equipment that put up all the the um, uh, the barriers and barricaded the, um, the different markets and stuff. And, and you're right, while we were there, we were one of the ones that went there on 12-month orders and then, uh, and then was extended for, for 15 months. Um, and, and again, that was a, a, a fun little shock. So yeah, I was there from October of 06 to December of, uh, 2007. You guys take any losses on that deployment? Um, you know, our unit specifically, no. Um, and, and this was one of the things is a lot of, because of the, the security, um, and, you know, the curfew and everything. And, and we did all of our patrols at night, right? And so we would, you know, when we'd push, and, and we didn't go very far, of course, that, you know, Brewers and Plutos and, you know, Predators, and they were all dangerous routes, but, um, you know, we pretty much had secure routes to to get to get the supplies there. Uh, you know, some casualties and some firefights and things like that, but, uh, but nothing when it came to anyone significantly in our losses uh, in our unit. Um, but because of the nature of what we, what our unit did um, with battle damage recovery, you know, we saw it all. Um, we had a young man who was probably the, the, you know, the single best, uh, you know, driver that we had in the unit. Um, halfway through, you know, he had seen more dead bodies than he had years on this earth, right? You know, and it was just, it was, it was so, um, so widespread there and so difficult that, uh, you know, it just, it was kind of all over. You're talking about American soldiers, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I mean, when he comes back and tells you everything that's going on, can you grasp not only visually what he's talking about, but, you know, the, the entire scene? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, that we had all, by the time, of course, you know, we, we got, 
you know, too far into it, it became, and not to say that, that the, uh, that the lights weren't important, but it became routine. It became something that, you know, this is, you know, this is again, something else that we do. And, um, you know, we treat everyone with respect, but it's just the, and when you're in it, it's just sort of the job, right? It's the day to day issues. It's not until you come back and, uh, and sort of don't have time to figure out, you know, let's go on to the next mission. That's when things really start to uh, creep in for guys and gals. Any of your soldiers kind of talk to you about everything that they had seen and, you know, did you realize they were struggling then? I mean, I know you said it becomes routine, but sometimes that's dangerous more than anything. You know, I think it was, it, it was actually there at that point that I started to think, I started to see that, um, what these guys and gals were going to be dealing with in 15 years were the same thing that my dad and his brothers dealt with, you know, 15 years after Iraq. So I don't think that we really, yeah, yes, you have the memorial ceremonies and, and things like that. Um, I think I saw the impact there, and that's really what started me down the path of, of considering mental health as a career after the military. All right, so that deployment ends 15 months, uh, and you end up getting back. And what are you thinking now? I mean, is your career still on the same trajectory? You go back to Fort Carson, obviously, and um, you end up being told in a couple of years you're heading out again. Well, yeah, you know, but again, uh, the Army and its infinite wisdom. 2008 would have been the only year that I had um, at home between 06 and, and 13, right? We would have, because we didn't have a, a deployment scheduled uh, until um, probably 15 months later. Uh, but the, again, the Army deciding that, you know, the mission is important. Um, the summer of 08, they pulled a bunch of recruiters back out into the recruiting field to try to, they, they quote-unquote wanted to surge the recruiting field just like they surged in Iraq. And, and so basically I spent three months, I spent the summer um, of 2008, almost four months, um, you know, trying to put people back in the Army and, just being pissed off because I didn't want to be there. I left recruiting for a reason. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to get back to my platoon. Uh, so then when that was over by the fall, um, I, I came back to my original unit that I had been in by that time, second brigade had transitioned into fourth brigade, fourth ID. And, uh, and then I took over a platoon in uh, October. And again, this is the same kind of timeline of October of 08 or September of 08, something like that. Um, here's a, here's a brand new platoon, train them up. And then by July of 2009, we were back uh, And this time we went to Afghanistan. All right. So you've been to Iraq and for those obviously listening who aren't military, Iraq and Afghanistan are vastly different places. Um, not only just from a landscape standpoint, but just the, you know, the battle the the operational tempo and everything else was, was dynamically different. Do you have the same sort of similar mission in Afghanistan or what was this one? No, and see, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, I, I always say, and number one, I, I see my, I've been to Afghanistan twice. I had two Afghan deployments, and uh, and I could see myself going back to Afghanistan, you know, how, like, these uh, these guys go back to Vietnam and visit. Um, I really have no desire to go back to Baghdad. You can keep Baghdad. There is nothing that's ever going to really make me want to go back and sort of visit that. Uh, but Afghanistan is a beautiful country. It's very rich. It, you know, it's, it, the, the heritage is, is huge. Um, our mission, and we were in RC East, and this is something that not a lot of people are, are really familiar with is, you know, in, in Iraq, there are obviously some places that are more, um, uh, challenging than others. Um, but of all of the, um, uh, medals of honor that have been presented, uh, for the, uh, Afghan war, um, it only comes out of two places. They've only come out of two places, which is regional command East, um, which is the, the Paktika, the, basically along the, the Pakistan border. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, and then the Hellman province, uh, because the Marines were, were really getting hit hard. Um, and so, um, you know, cop Keating occurred while I was there. Um, sure. yeah. uh, you know, uh, so we were in the, the, the Kunar Korangal. Um, our mission was to, um, escort. We were basically at this point security escort, um, and not pushing supplies ourselves. So my platoon's mission was to um, conduct security for supplies that went from from the main base there in Jalalabad all the way up into um, where where the Cav Squadron was, ultimately the unit that um, that was there in uh, uh, in Cop Keating. 
Um, and, and that one was much more kinetic, uh, but we would, you know, it's like 120 miles and, and it would take three days for us to escort the supplies. Um, and it was, it was much more kinetic. Um, you know, by the time July came around, pretty much every time we went out, we were in a firefight. Um, you know, and especially when, when we got up to the, uh, the higher reaches of the, um, the Kunar, the Kunar River Valley, um, you know, and so it was a lot of firefights, and then there towards the end of the uh, deployment, it took the, uh, the the old IED started to come in and, and really start to uh, disrupt things for us. How so? Well, when um, where we were at, so the last 20 miles up, and, and you know, those of your, your audience who may be listening to um, this who've been in Afghanistan, uh, the mountain roads are, are pretty treacherous, and... Um, you know, we had these big army vehicles and, um, it pretty much at one point you have a 20 mile stretch of a dirt road, uh, that took us probably about 10 hours to go 20 miles. Um, just because of the terrain, because of the, the danger, um, we were so close to the Pakistan border. Of course, there were, um, firefights and things like that, but, uh, you didn't have to, to tear up the road too much to be able to disrupt a, a, a large, you know, convoy of supplies and stuff. Uh, so, you know, again, firefights and, and disabling vehicles and, and, uh, it was pretty much a, a fistfight just getting through there every time we went up in the spring or in the fall and then again in the spring. With that environment going on day to day, do you ever start to feel like, you know, eventually something bad's going to happen to one of us? You know, you, you, we're just, we're too exposed. We're too out there. Do you ever get that overwhelming feeling? Again, I guess I think it had to do with the fact that, it, you know, it was part of the job. Um, and at that point, we did. We, we lost um, we, we lost one. Her name was, uh, was Sergeant uh, Wolf. Um, and essentially, RPGs started piercing the sides of, of MRAPs and RG-31s. And, and they were in a particular firefight. And, and the, um, she was on the RTO, and the RPG uh, pierced the skin of the vehicle. And and that, you know, just in my unit, but also in our, our sister unit, you know, um, at 361 CAV, it just the, the losses were, you know, nearly, unfortunately, you know, weekly, if not almost sometimes daily. Um, so it was something, again, that, that you recognized that it was um, price of admission, part of the job. You know, and we did our best to make sure that uh, everyone that we had out there with us was, was the right people, right? You know, we had... Uh, um, and again, you know, everybody, you know, says that uh, your world shrinks to your foxhole, but, you know, your, your vehicle crew and the vehicles that, that are around you, um, that, that you pretty much just rely on, um, you know, the people there. I, I think a lot of it was, and, and, and I guarantee you that I, I got out of the vehicle much more than I probably should have, but you're not thinking about that. You got a mission to do. A vehicle gets stuck. If somebody gets in the way and just, you know, you, you got to get them out of the way. We got to resolve the problem. And so, yes, definitely um, there was that sort of in the general sense. But when you're on the route, you're just how do we how do we get things done? How does that deployment end? How long are you there for? And, and kind of uh, when it all gets to a wrap, is there like a sense of relief that it's finally over? Yeah, it ended in such a cliche way, right? You know, we were, because again, we're supposed to be, you know, transitioning and, and we had a really good unit we were transitioning with and about, we were, our last patrol was supposed to be about three or four days before we left and we, we get off for the patrol and we think, hey, all these guys are, you know, good to go. And my, my company commander's standing there and he's like, hey, um, yeah, I need you to go out one more time. And was like, Famous last kidding? words. Yeah. And, and he's like, you know, look, the, and it, you know, uh, the command needs, you know, so me and, uh, one of my section sergeants went out on one last patrol, um, uh, you know, got into, at this time, you know, we're not in charge of anything. So we're just sort of sitting along for the ride. Um, but you know, we got off of the road and then two hours later we're on a C-130, you know, heading to the NOS, right? So it's this idea of, you know, how soon you can be in a firefight and then you know, get back home. It was probably a week later uh, that I was in in Tennessee helping my brother-in-law build a deck for my um, uh, for my parent for my in-law, right? So I mean, it's it's just it's one of these things with how quickly everything shifted. Um, you really don't have time, I think, to be relieved. I and and I had a pretty good, uh, I had a very good um, 
experience with the guys that replaced us. The guy that I replaced in Afghanistan um, was actually the platoon sergeant of the guy who replaced me. So we had a really good connection. Turns out that uh, one of the section sergeants in the platoon that replaced me, I had put her brother-in-law in the army. You know, I mean, so there was all these different connections that uh, that were there, and and I was half half of my mind was in Afghanistan when I was back here in the States, you know, we had, if they stayed to our, you know, uh, timeline, they'd be on the route this time and the route steps in over here. And, you know, did we do everything, you know, did we train them enough and all this other stuff that's going through your head that, you know, I, I don't know that there was a sense of relief for a while. How much of the compounding, and I'm, I'm just we're going to get into the mental health stuff you do, you know, once we're, mm-hmm. we're done going through your career, but I'm just kind of curious as we go through this, how much from first deployment to second deployment does the mental stress compound, not only on you particular, but the guys that you're with, the, the, the other people in your unit? Are you starting to sense that they are starting to feel the weight of this thing? You know, yeah, and in a portion of the unit, so this was the same company, and, and I would say probably about half. Um, of the unit um, had been with us in Iraq, right? So we were already, you know, still a pretty solid team. Um, and and I actually had a section sergeant, and you know, and to talk about the, the compounding thing, uh, he was in Tenth Mountain uh, as a private or something, you know, was lower enlisted in, in 2001. Um, so he was with, you know, he, he was deployed to one of the first um, uh, conventional forces in Afghanistan for, you know, six or seven months. Then he comes back and he PCSs to Fort Stewart, and then he's in in third ID and on the invasion of Iraq, right? So mm-hmm. invasion of Afghanistan, invasion of Iraq. He was with us in the surge in Baghdad, and then he was with us in the surge in uh, in Afghanistan because that's when President Obama really pushed a lot of troops there in 2009-2010. So, you know, if, if you look at the first 10 years of these conflicts, this guy was at the point of history on, on both ends of the scale and he had been in for 10 years and uh and afterwards and it, absolutely one of my top guys and he was like i, I can't do it anymore i got to get out and he got out of 10 years and i was trying to do everything i could of course to to you know beg him to stay in but he was like I, it had already cost him one marriage and you know and he was just like there's <laughs> i don't want to anymore it's like you know and and not to fault him for it you know again in, in a 10 year period, this guy saw more combat than, than most, um, uh, most people had in their entire careers. And, and so there was a lot of that going on that, um, you know, the intensity of those years, um, weighed a lot more than, uh, and like you said, it accumulated, it built up. All right. So then uh, your last, uh, you're again, obviously still at Fort for Carson, you said, but you, you have one more deployment to Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, again, um, trying to wheel and deal with uh, with Branch, um, we had come back and my battalion had had another um, uh, deployment to Afghanistan. Um, I had taken over a company by that point, so I was a company first sergeant. Um, but uh, I came down orders for Fort Leonard Wood, and I said, no, thank you. I have no desire to go to Fort Leonard Wood. Uh, and so, um, like many other um, people that do strange things for strange reasons, um, I was back in Afghanistan probably about nine months after I left because I essentially made a deal with my branch manager. and said, you send me on the first thing smoking and you make sure I get back here to Fort Carson. I'll do whatever you want. Uh, you know, you know, there's that, a lot of people, by the way, Dwayne, there's a lot of people who would say you probably made the right choice over Fort Leonard would, was be Afghanistan. Yeah, you're, yeah, not, you're not probably right. on the wrong side of that. There was, I mean, I, that is exactly right. That is not a decision that I regret at all. Um, you know, in, in as much of trying to take care of the family, you know, I say that me and the family have been here since 06, but no, they've been here since 06. And of course I had the, the whirlwind tour. And, uh, so it was a, um, a, a, a type of mid team, the mobile training team. They, they needed a, a senior NCO, um, on an assignment. Essentially what we were doing in Kabul is, um, conducting, um, you know, observer controller duties for, um, the Afghan National Army. We were certifying them at the end of their training. We worked closely with some, uh, with the Ministry of Defense and, and the, the training and evaluation team there. Um, and, uh, and by that time, it was about nine months, our, our time and wound down. And, and one of the interesting things, how I ended up at Port Carson is, uh, even back then, 
the branch manager and said, hey, do you want to jump out of airplanes again? I was like, sure, why not? And uh, they said, okay, we can send you to Fort Bragg or we can send you to Fort Carson. Um, and I said, oh, I know the airborne unit at Fort Carson, the 10 Special Forces Group, send me there. Uh, when I got here to Fort Carson, I didn't have pinpoint orders, and I didn't end up going to 10th Group. Um, so by that time, I figured I'd uh, hung up my jump boots for good. Uh, leaving Afghanistan, I get my orders, and sure enough, 15 years later or whatever it was, they decided to let me jump out of airplanes again. So that's when I got assigned to 10th Group uh, for the last several years of my career. That's awesome. I deployed with those guys for my first deployment. Good dudes over there. Um, and as you can tell, the, the 10th Special Forces guys are, are, the, are one of the more fun groups out there. They're not like the 5th group guys or the 3rd group guys. 10th group has a whole different sort of uh, mentality. No, yeah, absolutely they do. And, you know, I like to say, you know, special just isn't part of the name. Um, they, uh, because they've got the battalion, uh, one battalion in, in Germany, um, and then they have the, the three battalions here. Um, and it was really, it, it was an, you know, it was, it was fun for me. Really what my plan was, right? I'd stayed in 22 years. My plan was is to see what kind of job I had when I came back from, uh, um, from Afghanistan the second time. And if I liked it, I'd, I'd stick around. If not, I'd drop my retirement paperwork. Uh, but it was a really great unit. I, I feel like I really went out on the top of my game. It was a, a fun time. Um, I was able to go the, the last, um, uh, it was an operational deployment to North Africa with those guys um, for about four months in the beginning of 13, where we set up a camp for a, a multinational training exercise. So we spent some time in Mauritania. And, uh, and again, you know, jumping out of airplanes and, and things like that. Unfortunately, um, it, it was part of the issue was uh, I got hurt on a jump in 2012 deployed with that injury, jumped two more times just to make sure I, I locked my injury in good and tight because I'm a moron. And, uh, <laughs> it, by that time it was, uh, you know, again, it was really, you know, the family and I decided, um, you know, by that time I, I had also, and this is where everything is parallel. I had already started my master's degree for my clinical mental health counseling. I already knew what I was going to be doing or believed I knew what I was going to be doing when I got out. And so it all just, with the injury and the time coming up and, uh, and the master's program coming to a close, I just, uh, everything wrapped up at the same time back in August of 14. And I know, by the way, for those, uh, anybody listening from fifth group or seventh group or third group, I wasn't disparaging you guys, but you guys know that just a different environment uh, for each one of the SF groups. So I didn't want anybody to, uh, to take offense to it. Now, you just had mentioned that you knew what you would, when did you figure out that you were going to do the mental health thing? You know, I think it was really sort of a, um, uh, a long time coming. Like I said, I saw it in Iraq that, um, that there was going to be a need to address some of these things. Um, and sure, there were, you know, there were people uh, addressing, you know, psychological issues, even as far back as Iraq, another unit that had been on their base lost the first sergeant to, to suicide. And, you know, there was just, you know, seeing what all that stress was happening. And then when I came back, and this would have been uh, um, 2008 into 2000, uh, sorry, into 2007, beginning of 2008, um, I was in a you know one of these post-deployment briefings, and there happened to be a therapist from the local vet center who was a retired major, and she said, uh, you know, oh by the way, to, to us, there's probably a hundred of us in the room. Oh by the way, if any of you are think or, or interested in psychology, consider a career in the mental health field because there's not enough combat veterans in the mental health industry. Um, you know, and I and that sort of dropped a stone in the mind. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, that's probably something I could do because you know, what does the the platoon sergeant, the first sergeant, do? You know, hey Joe, what's going on? Take a knee, you know, and tell me about what's up. So, so there is a level of, of mentorship and, and expertise when it comes to taking care of your troops, you know, mentally as well as physically. Uh, so that's when I really decided to, um, you know, kind of go down that route. Um, I was uh, finishing my bachelor's degree. All of it, and this is one thing that, you know, can't thank the Army enough, but every single one of my degrees the Army paid for. Um, and then by the time I got out, the GI Bill. And so, um, you know, that was all taken care of. And so by the time that I was in Afghanistan, the second time I'd finished my bachelor's degree in psychology and I had already known that, uh, you know, I'd need a master's degree to be a clinical mental health counselor. And uh, by the time I got back to, uh, to Carson uh, and in 10th group, that's when I um, enrolled in my master's program, 
at a school here in Colorado called Adams State University, and uh, and then uh, retired in in uh, August of fourteen, and then graduated with my master's degree in uh, in the fall of excuse me in the spring of fifteen. So, what is the nature of the work that you do right now for for both of the organizations that you're a part of, both uh, the Veteran Services at the Family Care Center and the Colorado Veterans Health and Wellness Agency? So the Family Care Center is a privately owned uh, outpatient mental health counseling uh, agency. Um, I like to describe this as sort of like a civilian vet center. Um, so how the vet center is separate from the VA and they have their outpatient therapy arm. Um, and that's what we do. We're here at Fort Carson and Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado Springs. Um, so there are a lot of military families, but our agency specifically focuses on um, military families uh, used to do some service members, not so much anymore because the military has really stepped up in that regard. Um, and then we shifted to a lot of veterans. But when I started, uh, so I actually started working in my time um, uh, in the military overlap because I was doing some, doing my, we have to do internships. So we have to actually be a practicing clinician before we graduate. So I was with this organization in um, starting January of 14. And we were working with the local veterans court. So justice involved veterans, um, you know, Joe goes downtown and gets drunk in bar fights or, you know, what have you. Um, and they find themselves in the back of a cop car and stand in front of the judge. And so uh, in 2009, the veterans court sort of uh, came around here in Colorado Springs. Um, and, uh, and then in 2014, my agency was providing services to a lot of them. So that's really what I was doing was uh, I was a primary therapist just for the veterans court. And then um, in 2016, uh, sort of took, o- took over all of our veterans programs. Um, uh, we worked very closely with the local VA and, and other organizations to provide outpatient therapy. Uh, at the same time, I, I saw that, you know, it's great that we're giving these veterans, you know, the help that they need once they plead guilty to, you know, whatever it is, a crime or what have you. Why can't we help veterans before they get to that place? And there's just so many barriers to veterans getting, um, you know, treatment, outpatient therapy. Um, you know, of course, some of it is the stigma, uh, but then it's just, you know, the cost of it and insurance and whether they have insurance or don't or the, the accessibility of it or the frequency of it. Um, so that's where um, we uh, started the, the nonprofit arm of the, um, the, the business, which is the Colorado Veterans Health and Wellness Agency. Uh, where we provide grant-funded services to veterans in the area uh, at no cost. Um, I personally don't think that a veteran should have to pay for their own mental health treatment, so I go out and I find other people to pay me to see veterans for therapy. Dwayne, why are we failing right now from a mental health standpoint from veterans? Is it lack of care? Is it lack of adequate care? Is it on veterans themselves? I mean, why are we failing in this area? Um, like, like a lot of different things, I think it's a complicated issue. Um, from a clinician point of view, the mental health community is failing because we don't have very good PR. We, we believe in what we do. We know that we have a good product, but we don't sell it very well. You know, everybody has this, um, this, this idea of what a therapist looks like. If you're a guy, you smoke a pipe, you have a jacket with patches on your elbows, and, you know, you ask me to talk about my mother, like, like Freud. If you're, if you're a female therapist, then you're most likely going to burn incense and sit cross-legged on the floor while, you, you know, you ask me how I'm my feelings, which isn't true, right? But everybody has these stereotypes of, of what they think therapy is or what they think therapy does. Um, and, and so that's a challenge. In, in my industry is how do we communicate to veterans and how do we give veterans things, what they need? Uh, but the other thing is, is, is mental health in America and, and perhaps around the world, but, but it's always just sort of this taboo subject. You know, if I'm at a party, even like, I, you know, I, I blasted my foot on a jump. I'll talk about that all day long, but I won't talk about the depression. I won't talk about the anxiety. So there's this taboo around mental health. Um, there's a stigma in the, in the, the veteran community. But also when the veterans actually want to reach out, you know, somebody needs to be there to answer, you know, the, the knock at the door. And, uh, and so it, I think it's a, a complicated issue on a lot of different fronts. What's the way ahead? How do we start to change not only stigma and perception, but, you know, I mean, how do, how do we start to get the actual care that's needed? 
Well, and that's, uh, again, one of the other things that I, many things that I do is, is really just trying to communicate to veterans that, look, this isn't the, um, this is, mental health is no different than physical health. You know, if I say physical health, you don't automatically go to the thought of cancer or diabetes, right? You, you go to, you know, fitness and wellness. But when I say mental health, especially when it comes to veterans, everybody automatically goes to the PTSD, right? And, and, and even that's not true. So a lot of it is, and my goal and, and what I do even on my own website and podcast is trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. Um, you know, it, it's, it's about, you know, supporting wellness, not curing illness and, and really trying to get the conversation out into the, um, added to the community or at the same time, helping the mental health community say that veterans are a unique culture that we need to understand how we communicate with veterans in a therapeutic sense, right? You know, we all hear the, the horror stories of a veteran that goes through talking about the worst day of their life and, and their, their therapist can't even hold it together and, and they're sitting there crying and veterans are like, I'm, I'm not going to come back to you with this. If you can't even handle it, how can you help me handle it? Yeah. So I think it has to do with educating the mental health field about the unique nature of veteran mental health while also getting the, the veterans and their families and those who support them to understand that this ain't nothing different than going to the dentist. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I like that idea on its premise, but I, I think the problem with veterans is they realize that, you know, um, some of them may feel like it's going to the dentist, but, you know, the dentist actually is a plumber dressed as a dentist, you know, like that's what I kind of feel like a lot of veterans may feel, as you just talked about, they're not equipped to handle, um, you know, the the understanding and nature of combat and how it goes. And it's something we talk about a lot here on the podcast, but, you know, you, you'll never understand combat if you've never been in it. You know, I mean, think about it this way. Like, you can have a guy who's never played football, study the game, watch it, and, you know, understand the intricacies of it and the nuances of it and be able to describe it really well to somebody. There's no way to watch combat from afar and understand what your body and your mind go through and be able to translate that to somebody else, right? Uh, Yeah, Sort of, right? I mean, I know many mental health professionals who have worked with veterans for a very long time that have taken their um, their experiences, um, taken the veterans' experiences and really learned from them and grew from them. Um, you know, one of the, from the mental health standpoint, from a psychology standpoint, um, Dave Grossman's books on war and on killing, um, you know, are, are excellent descriptions of what happens to us when we're in combat, both neurologically, biologically, and psychologically. But Dave Grossman never actually deployed to combat, right? He was a, a mental health professional who, you know, you know, who worked with veterans and did the research. Um, imagine if you and I went to, to go live in Germany and, and we could learn the language and we could, we could learn everything about the culture. We could get 99% of the way there. We're not natural-born Germans, but we can get farther than just somebody who you know, picked up German too in high school. And so there are a number of veterans. There's actually a, a book, um, Achilles in Vietnam, which really talks about moral injury by a, um, a psychologist named Jonathan Shea. And Jonathan Shea admits he had never deployed, but he worked with a lot of um, Vietnam veterans in the 70s and 80s and, and of course, even beyond. Um, but he said that I'm not a native speaker, but I've gotten 98% of the way there. He says, I recognize that those last 2%, that they can be really, really critical but it's also, you don't have to have been a veteran um, to, to treat uh, a veteran when it comes to mental health. Um, you do have to make sure that the person you're talking to has taken the time to listen, learn, and understand, uh, and understand the unique aspects of military culture. But the, there's simply, and it goes back to the easy, uh, earlier point, is there's simply not enough of, of us, those who have deployed to combat in the mental health field, to be able right. to serve all of the needs of the veterans. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the big thing, and that's where kind of where I was coming from uh, from the standpoint of maybe we do need more veterans who are willing to step up and treat other veterans. Because I mean, look, I, I always say it on the podcast: no one knows how to take care of us better than us. It's just what right. we know how to do. It's always about the man next to you. It's always about the person next to you, and and we understand that better than anybody. And to that end, we are better equipped to treat each other, so to speak, and, and be the, the the buddy that you or the the voice that you need because it's easy to tell us what we're going through. You know, you're exactly right. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we have to be very careful um, 
for a veteran who is also a, a therapist, a mental health counselor, to not let it turn into, you know, a, a two-way war story swap, right? I mean, it, right. You know, there's, there's times where it can actually, you know, it'd be detrimental sometimes. I mean, I, I've had some clients that, uh, um, that, that weren't cool with the whole senior NCO as a therapist thing because the senior NCOs in the military were some of the challenges that they had had, right? So everybody has sort of a, a unique need, and, and for those veterans, and, and, you know, is it necessarily true that somebody says, you know, I can only talk to a veteran? Not really, but if that veteran thinks it's true, then it is. And so having a, a wide range of individuals who are, are able to um, connect with. My, my colleague that works with me in the programs that we do now, um, she's a gold star wife. Um, she understands the military and, and, and arguably understands the military in ways that I have no understanding of at all, having been through what she went through. Um, and so the two of us working together, she works well with some veterans. Um, I work well with other veterans, and it's just it's addressing what the veteran actually needs, um, you know, in in whatever their recovery is going to be. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a, a very admirable of her um, as far as being a gold star wife and still wanting to do that and really provide, you know, and give back. That's a, I guess that's a great way to deal with the grief. But you know, let's kind of uh, put some final thoughts on the mental health discussion because obviously it's lengthy and and we could do it forever, but. What's your message to veterans who may be struggling right now? And like, how do you, how do you approach them? What do you say? I mean, how do you make them feel comfortable about the decision that, Hey, I do need help. Well, first I I think it has to do with awareness, right? That that we have to be aware that there is something wrong or something not right or however you want to phrase it, right? That, That there's something that isn't going well, you know, whether I'm not sleeping or I'm drinking too much or, you know, I'm on my third marriage, whatever the issue is, my relationships are disruptive, that, that there's an underlying cause for this. You know, could it be combat? Sure. Could it be military? Could it be something, you know, um, even farther back? Um, but not only is there a cause for it, but there's also help out there that's available. And, and you know, again, just trying to pull the curtain back and demystify what therapy is and what therapy can do for you. you know, again, we have this, this you know, hocus pocus, you know, mind reading, you know, I'm not going to talk about my feelings or, you know, no, we don't talk about your mother unless your mother's the problem, right? It's, it's, it's whatever is going on um, psychologically. A lot of the concern, especially we talk about these transition now is we have so many resources available for veterans, right? We're going to get them a job. They'll feel better. We're going to get them, um, you know, uh, get them connected with team RWB or team Rubicon and they're going to be back in their community and only when all of those other things don't work out, then do we say, oh, by the way, there's a mental health guy in the back in the shack here. Maybe you should go talk to him because nothing else works. Where arguably mental health and wellness is the foundation of transition, and we don't talk about it much. Um, it's, it's the foundation on which everything else is built on. You know, the turnover in the, the employment space, um, you know, the, the lack of satisfaction in our relationships, of course, when it comes to, to depression, but even just, you know, the the, the guilt or the, the survivor's guilt that we might have, all of these different things, once we get them in place, then, then we can actually have a better post-military life than, than maybe we're experiencing now. Well, Dwayne, listen, I mean, the message is, is incredible and obviously one that needs to be told over and over and over again because uh, whatever the numbers are, whether it's 22 a day or, what you know, I, I'm not uh, – they are what they are, right? It's it's not a good situation right now, and obviously it needs to improve. And and the worst thing we can do is uh, continue to pretend like, you know, the the proper things are being done uh, to get the help to get veterans the help they need because clearly that they're not. But what you're working on and what you're doing is is obviously a step in that direction. And seriously, I mean, it's a uh, without guys like you out there pushing the message, you know, these numbers would be worse. I mean, it's it's you can't say it any other way. No, and you're absolutely right. And, and even focusing on what the ultimate numbers are, but even focusing on the problem of suicide, right? Suicide is a lagging indicator of the underlying problem. It's a symptom. It's not the thing that we need to address. And we need to address whatever it is that caused the veteran or is causing the veteran community, of which it's, it's almost unique to everybody who takes their own lives. But really, if we're addressing suicide, and this is the way I describe it. If I walk into a doctor's office and I have a runny nose, I expect the doctor to tell me whether it's the flu or whether it's allergies because they're going to address each of those things differently. 
It's the same thing with suicide. It may be, you know, family issues for one veteran, it may be, you know, a traumatic stress reaction for another or addiction or, or a bunch of these different things. To address the veteran suicide epidemic, we absolutely need to address the underlying mental health condition. And to be able to do that, we as mental health professionals need to get involved in the conversation as much as everyone else is. Dwayne France, thank you for your message and thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. It's a new day, and it's coming at you fast. With Comcast Business, you'll have what you need to take on every twist and turn, like the flexibility to control multiple Wi-Fi networks from anywhere, a cybersecurity solution to help protect all your connected devices, and the power of the nation's largest gig speed network, all supported by a dedicated team available 24-7. Every day in business is a big day. Comcast Business will keep you ready for what's next. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.